Hello everyone, welcome once again to Reason for Hope. Very glad that you're joining us today and have stumbled upon our broadcast or here fully on purpose. Uh, for whatever reason you're with us, we are glad. A Reason for Hope is a live hour-long broadcast which is guided by your questions on the Bible. We're on multiple online platforms where you can join us live and send your questions into us. And we will answer those questions with the use of God's Word the Bible. So if you have questions on Scripture, there might be a verse or passage of Scripture you'd like explained a little better. Uh, maybe something you're going through in your life, you'd like a biblical uh, perspective. Maybe Christianity as a whole, maybe you're, you're seeking answers to what Christianity, the lifestyle, the worldview is, maybe even other religions as they relate to Christianity. Any question along those lines. And again, it's not all just Bible debate. We would love to minister to you and help you out in your life as you walk with the Lord. So Again, if there's a situation, you'd like to know what God says about it. Um, we'd love to, to give you some guidance there from the Word as well. So any of those things, anything along those lines, as long as it's an honest question, and as long as you know that the Bible is where we find our answers, that's what we're all about here at Reason for Hope. My name's Dave Robson. I'm your host today. I'll be on all those platforms with you. Check in for your questions as they come in with us today, just the, just the two of us, me and uh, Pastor Sean Richards over here. How are you doing? Grateful that that lyric stopped. <laughs> I know. Every time I say that, just the two of us, I really, I just want to carry on with that. But uh, time is precious. Just the two of us today, uh, we can do it. The, the few, the faithful, the only two who were available. But <laughs> we've done this before and we'll do it again. Yes. And it's always a blessing and always a great time. Sean does a wonderful uh, job. So, so once again, we're looking forward to your questions today. As I mentioned, a Reason for Hope is a live broadcast. We're with you Monday through Friday, 5 to 6 p.m. Mountain Standard Time. We're here in Tucson, Arizona, broadcasting from Calvary Christian Fellowship. It is an outreach of Calvary Christian Fellowship here in Tucson. So if you're in the Tucson area and looking for somewhere to fellowship and worship and study the Word, then you're more than welcome to come check us out. We're near Prince and I-10 on the west side of the freeway, Calvary Christian Fellowship. You can check us out on our website, calvarychristianfellowship.com. You can find more details there of all the things that are going on. Um, we're streaming live uh, there at the moment as well. So if you go to that Watch Live tab, that will take you to our live page. Or the direct link is ccftucson.online.church. ccftucson.online.church. You can type that right into the address bar or follow the link from calvarychristianfellowship.com. Uh, you'll see a countdown to the next uh, event and, a, and a, um, a schedule of upcoming events when we're offline. But as we're online right now, you'll see the video. You can sign in with the username and send me your question. Uh, right there in the chat function. We're on Facebook as well, facebook.com slash CCF Tucson, or just look for Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson on Facebook. And again, that's another way that you can send your question into us. I'll be checking that as well as the show goes goes along. And don't forget to like and share if you wouldn't mind. We'd appreciate that. And, uh, um, you know, say hi. And uh, also send your question in to us uh, through that method. We have a, a mobile um, app as well, an app for your mobile device, I should say, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson once again. If you look for that in your app store, we have a channel on Roku and Apple TV as well. So if you have those uh, devices, a Roku stick or Apple TV device or anything along those lines, you can find our channel, Calvary Christian Fellowship of Tucson, and watch us on your big screen. We're live on YouTube as well. The channel is called A Reason for Hope there on YouTube. Streaming live again, we'd appreciate it if you would like and subscribe and click on the bell to get notified when we're live and all that good stuff. It's a good place to go for uh, archive if you see that live tab right there anytime we've been live it archives right there so if you missed a show or you want to kind of recap on a question that we covered you can do that right there on YouTube on the live 
uh, tab right there. Um, our senior pastor here at Calvary Christian Fellowship, Scott Richards, he's not with us uh, today, but he is on Twitter if you'd like to follow along with him, Scott R4H, that's uh, Scott, and then letter R, number four, letter H. On Twitter, he posts highlights from the show. He posts commentary on like world events and news articles as it relates to uh, biblical prophecy and end times and those kind of things. So if that's something that interests you, which it certainly should in these interesting um, times that we are living in, then follow along with Pastor Scott and uh, you'll find it very informative and sometimes all, almost amusing. So that's <laughs> on Twitter if you're on that platform. We're on Rumble as well. We're not live on Rumble, but we post videos there. A Reason for Hope Bible Q&A. You'll find us there. And our email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com. Questions for Hope spelled out at gmail.com. You're welcome to email your questions there anytime as well. I'll be checking all those platforms, like I said, as we go along. So do send your questions in. Any question about the Bible or what the Bible says about certain things, anything on your heart like that please do send those questions in. We would love to hear from you. If you're listening to us on the radio, we're certainly glad that you are, but uh, keep in mind that you're listening to the last show that we did pre-recorded, so we're not live with you, so to speak, uh, but we're glad you're joining us. Drive safely if you're on your drive time, and then consider joining us on one of those live platforms where you can send us your question. But if you use that email address, questionsforhope at gmail.com, we'll try and get to that question on our next show, and maybe you can catch that in a couple of days. So with all that being said, we love to pause to pray at this point. Of course, we're doing something very pretty serious, handling God's word. We want to be very accurate in what we share and do it all in love and all that good stuff. So we certainly want to acknowledge the Lord in all of this. And um, Oh, Sean, would you like to pray today? Okay. That'd be great. Dad, thank you that we have the chance to be here. We all know that we don't have anything to offer apart from you. So we pray that you would provide yourself to be given to your people as they hear your word. Allow it to be shared not only accurately and free from error, but also in the spirit of grace that you originally spoke it. Thank you that we have the privilege of sharing it in this way. Please preserve that freedom for as long as possible so you can be honored by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Mm -hmm. Amen. Amen. Amen indeed. That is true. All right. Yeah. So, well, as I get caught up with you guys sending in your questions as you're joining us, we had a question from Aaron. This is actually something that comes up quite a lot on the show, Aaron asks, is slavery condoned in the Bible, and could it be justified in modern times? Well, as far as modern times are concerned, there's more slaves now in circulation, if you will, than any other time in history. Mm. The problem is, much like those who level this objection, they have to commit what's called the equivocation fallacy, to use a term with multiple meanings use it in one sense and then hold someone against it when in another sense it's being applied. So for example, when we're talking about the word slavery, it has a huge spectrum. Generally, I like to narrow it down to five if I'm having a conversation with someone, say at Tanka Verde, and they say, oh, the slavery is supported in the Bible. Usually the conversation will continue productively with well, what kind of slavery, because employment is slavery. Being a child and having to do what you're told is a form of slavery. Chattel slavery is slavery. Which one do you mean? Because all those things are very different. One is a criminal offense in most countries, and one is just the reality of growing up. So when we're asking the question, what kind of slavery are we talking about, we'll first define our terms. Before resorting to language, let's start with the dictionary. 
when it comes to the differences between types of slavery, it all narrows down to one factor, and that is how much of your rights are preserved. Now, if we're going to go as far as a spectrum is concerned, the total negation of human rights, the chattel slavery, if you will, where you're not considered a human being, you're considered farm equipment. The Roman pagans popularized this, where more citizens in the Roman Empire were slaves in this sense than any other. And we also associate it with the trans-Saharan and transatlantic slave trade, where people, of course, were dehumanized and reduced to the state of being just farm tools, no other purpose, no need for rights or preservation thereof. A step above that would be what we'd call indentured servitude. Some rights are afforded, but not a lot. It's not an ideal situation to be in. What puts you above the status of chattel slavery is that, like chattel slavery, the job description of a slave is to do what you're told. That's going to be true in all five definitions. But in the state of being told what to do, you also are afforded a limited time frame of which you will be in service to somebody. Uh, indentured servitude is usually done not as a result of being kidnapped and forced against your will into a status in society where you just are the type of person who does what you're told. Your identity is reduced to that of a slave insofar as you need to pay off a debt. Now, people can manipulate this through usury and interest and so forth to prolong your sentences. If there is a fixed time period and the owner lies about the time that you started serving, that that has been abused and can be, so we don't want to dismiss that. It's not a good situation, but it's better than chattel slavery because of that factor. Your rights are being preserved, at least uh, your rights as far as the ability to leave slavery. That's important. The third type of slavery, which would meet right about in the middle, would be what we'd call modern-day employment, where there is a fixed, <laughs> yeah, well, <laughs> being honest, there's a fixed time in which you are to leave. There's a contract basis in which you are to be uh, regarded as a human being even while on the job, but even in the midst of that, while you're on the job, you're expected to stay at the job or there'll be punishments. You're expected to be, you know, on time and to leave on time, otherwise there'll be punishments. But at the same time, there's things like labor unions, which we'll get into in a minute, that can legally fight for uh, someone's rights if they are violated. State law and so forth is what we usually associate in the United States, but we're not quite there yet. The fourth type of slavery is what we'd call not just employment, but modern-day employment, where a lot of rights are afforded to you, specifically in the context of, and this would be a more appropriate word, volunteer work, where you aren't obligated to stay, but you're choosing to do what you're told to put yourself in a position where you volunteer and are in the position of the slave. You do what you're told, job description, yeah. but you can leave at any time, you arrive at any time, you're there of your own will. Yeah. Children would then fit the fifth form of slavery, where every right is afforded to you and then some, but on top of that, if your parents tell you to do something, you do it. So yeah. a huge spectrum, all under the definition of you do what you're told, but all the differences between these two, and there are other examples, these are just some I'm giving to show that it's all not black and white, is from chattel slavery, indentured servitude, employment, modern employment or volunteer work, and of course being a child, would all fit into that on the basis of rights being preserved. That's the difference. Now, does the Bible use the word slavery? 
Yes. But is it chattel slavery? Is it uh, employment? Is it volunteer work? That remains to be seen. Mm-hmm. And if you don't allow the Bible, to, the liberty to define what it means, then you're going to be, uh, I guess, accused of being dishonest, if mm-hmm. not uninformed, when you make an accusation. And the second thing is, how is it applied? Because when the Bible's advertised to a lot of people, usually it's put in terms of, you know, do this, don't do that, go there, don't go there. Yes, there are a few chapters that lay out legal terms, but the Bible isn't an instruction manual, it's a principle-based manual. In three categories of literature, history, poetry, and prophecy, each have to be handled within their own setting, time, and to the audience they were speaking to, so that we don't end up misrepresenting what's actually being described. We also need to take into consideration when we, like I said earlier, commit the equivocation fallacy, we say chattel slavery is the only slavery that's the only thing it could possibly mean. Well, let's take that to the test. If we're going to note one of the key characteristics of chattel slavery, and that of course being that you're taken from your home and reduced to the state of a second-class citizen, your identity is now being brought into a slave, would that be permitted in the Bible? Well, in Exodus chapter 21 and verse 16, we read the following, and this is again the law given to Israel. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. Well, that rules chattel slavery out because if someone were to do that in a biblical context, or at least under biblical law, would be worthy of the death penalty. And that's held along similar crimes like murder, adultery, and blasphemy. So once again, define terms. If it can't fit into that definition, we're starting to get ticked up. But, say for instance, the Bible commands something that people did it anyway. Does that mean that the Bible condones it? Once again, no, because the Bible recording something doesn't mean it approved of it. There are quotations of Satan in the Bible. That's not doctrine. That's an example of someone who's lying, speaking, thus a lie. (laughs) And a lie recorded in Scripture is a condonement of a lie. So once again, we'll take another step back and ask, what terms are set for slaves? Well, fortunately for us in the same chapter, Exodus chapter 21, we're told about the rights that are afforded to servants, and we're going to find out, and I use the word servant intentionally, that we're fit into in the category of five, five being the best and one being the worst, we would fit ourselves biblically into a 2.8, 2.7 percentage on the scale of ideal. Mm -hmm. Now, once again, I'm not going to excuse the behavior of people in history, people who were slave owners that tried to use the Bible, although it's ironic given the fact that the slave Bible, which you can find in museums today, has a lot of parts of the Bible that are removed in order to inform their slaves about Christianity, but for some reason there was stuff in there that slave owners didn't want them to read. Hmm. So which is it? Does the Bible condone slavery, or does it condemn slavery in the parts they didn't want them to read? So take that for what it's worth. But I argue 2.8. Why? Because we're given a list of rights that are afforded to people, not just on the basis of status, but also on the basis of gender. So in Exodus 21 and verse 1, this is the terms of how slavery is defined. Now these are the judgments which which you shall set, excuse me, Before them, if you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. In the seventh, he shall go out free and pay nothing. 
So already in the span of verse 2, we're told a time limit, see indentured servitude, is set a maximum of six years of service, period, and it's only in the context of what? Payment. So indentured servitude's being identified. But note this, there's also additional rights. Thus, I'd put it a little bit above that. Verse 3, if he comes in by himself, that is, into the status of a servant, he shall go out by himself. If he comes in married, his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But, verse 5, if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go out free, then his master, this is important, shall bring him to the judges, so to public officials in leadership. Mm. And in that public setting, he will repeat his request. He won't be coerced into it. There'll be armed men nearby in case the master is trying to pull something. Mm. And what? He will bring him to the judges. He also bring him to the door or the door post, and the master shall pierce his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. So, and for those of you who are curious about this, additional verses in Leviticus and Deuteronomy note, this is the status of a bond servant. If you saw someone with a gold earring, it wasn't just jewelry, that was the status of a slave by choice. Mm. Someone who had committed themselves to a lifetime of service in the same way that we would compare to like Bruce Wayne's relationship with, uh, what, what was his uh, butler's name, do you remember? Oh. I'm, I'm a loose on my DC comics. Alfred, that was it. Yes, Alfred. Um, so you're considered a part of the family. You're included in the inheritance. You have a living situation within the home. You have a job description, a job to do within the house. But you are either released after six years, no exceptions, or you can voluntarily commit yourself on the basis of what? Not coercion, not fear, but a relationship, because rights were also afforded to do what while you're in the status of a slave? Marry into the family. Mm. So note that the picture of chattel slavery being the only kind of slavery, not an appropriate picture. But notice I also mentioned gender. This is verse 7. If a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master, who has betrothed her to himself, now, wait a minute. Just like with the payment issue, what kind of slavery is this? What kind of selling is this? Betrothal. Yeah. Now, we don't observe the same ceremonies today, but a betrothal was a step to get married to somebody. Yeah. And if you're in the status of a slave and then becoming married, well, that's an upgrade, depending on whether or not you buy into the modern matriarchist rhetoric, but that's another issue. He has betrothed him to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. Then he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has dealt deceitfully with her. What was the deception? The intention to marry. Then note as well, and if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes an other wife, another wife, an other, I noticed the hyphen there and read it poorly. Anyway, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. 
And if he does not do these three for her, then she shall go out free without paying money. So literally the only allowed form of slavery in the context of indentured servitude for men had a time limit and a provision on the basis of relationship to commit yourself longer, Hmm. but no farther than six years otherwise in the context of debts. If a woman sold herself for a debt and she was not afforded all the rights of a wife, her debt was forgiven. She was to go free, no exceptions. Now, there's other groups that would, and again, I say this intentionally, dishonestly present scripture as to be pro-slavery. And if we're going to follow that route, then obviously we as Christians are going to look to the example of Jesus, who for whatever reason never bought or sold or treated slaves in the way that they advertise as such. So what's the problem? Well, if we can't look to Jesus, then we can look to his followers and what they concluded from Jesus of Nazareth's direct example and teaching. And that was what? Well, the best example inside of the Bible, and then I'll provide one outside before we get to the next question, would be the book of Philemon where in the context of the Roman government, which was not Christian, it was pagan, thoroughly so, in fact, where slavery was the status quo, and Israel, or Israel in particular, but the Christians, had no political authority to challenge the status. In fact, even going into the Middle Ages, the abolitionist movement, spoiler alert, spent most of their time freeing slaves not making legislation to abolish it. What later ended up happening was just following through on, there's a gap in our economy because all these Christians keep freeing the slaves. What gave them that idea? Well, let's turn there to the book of Philemon. And in that context, Paul the Apostle is speaking to a friend of his and uh, with the person he was sending along the letter to. It, <laughs> well, let's just read it. Uh, Philemon, again, was written to a man by the name of, let me get to the first verse, Philemon. (laughs) (laughs) Makes sense. Verse one, our beloved friend and fellow laborer to uh, to the beloved Apipha, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. So we're told a little bit about this guy, his wife, and his family. They had a house where they gathered with the church. Now, the church, we usually think of a building. It literally, the word ecclesia, means a gathering of like-minded people. Wherever Christians are gathered, that's the church. Just note that as a little bonus. Verse 4, I laugh every time I read it. I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers, hearing of your love and faith, which you have towards the Lord Jesus, towards all the saints, through the sharing of your faith, and have now become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you, in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Now, you wonder why I'm laughing at this. Paul's setting him up. He's building up this situation where, since I know that you have such an abounding relationship with Jesus and it's just impacted your behavior and decision-making, this is going to be important. Because, in verse 8, he says, Therefore, though I might be bold in Christ to command you, I could give you orders, what is fitting. Yet for love's sake, I'd rather appeal to you, being such a one as Paul the aged the prisoner of Christ, you can tell he's really laying this on thick. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus. Onesimus was a slave's name. Like when you were put into that state in the Roman government, you'd have your name basically replaced with a number. Uh, Un Onesimus. Mm. Tertius was one of the individuals who penned, not wrote, but penned the uh, epistle to the Romans. He's mm. mentioned at the end of the book. Um, that literally meant three, so wow. note, note that point, tertiary, secondary, duos, those kinds of things. 
But he appeals to Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I'm sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is, my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on your behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing. That your good deed, he's already assuming he's going to do something good, right? Mm-hmm. Your good deed might not be by compulsion, as it were, but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, so Onesimus was a slave in Philemon's house, mm-hmm. but more than a slave, a beloved brother. Mm-hmm. He's a Christian now. And he says, especially to me, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. And then he goes on to note, I'll be coming soon to uh, see both of you, if you catch my drift. Mm -hmm. But the point being made is this. Philemon was what they called in the ancient Roman culture, fugitivus. We get our term fugitive from it. He had not only ran away from Mm -hmm. his status as being a slave, which would be a death penalty all on its own, but apparently had stolen something. The term unprofitable there means he cost you something in order to finance his journey, where he eventually made it to Rome. That's where Paul was in prison when he sent Onesimus back with this letter. Mm. And the hilarious part is on top of this huge guilt trip that he's giving on him, he's appealing to him on the basis of what? Jesus Christ in you. The same Jesus Christ that inspired Paul in Galatians to say there is neither Jew nor Greek, no cultural differences, male nor female, no gender differences, slave nor free no societal differences. You are all one in Christ Jesus. So this attitude, this mindset that literally rewrote society as far as Christians were concerned and eventually the world as it was concerned did not see each other distinct based on class, based on finances, based on gender, based on even your cultural background. Colossians adds in barbarian or Scythian, whether you spoke Greek or not. The idea was that because Christ has placed his value on you, that is your new identity. So what then is the implications of that? What is the teaching of that? Well, a man by the name of William Wilberforce, came from your neck of the woods, Dave, Mm -hmm. was the first legal abolitionist. And what do I mean by that? Well, an abolitionist wasn't just someone who tried to get rid of everything. It was specifically in the context of the transatlantic transatlantic slave trade. And in his abolition of this, his political activism, he was at a point where he could actually influence things legislatively. As I mentioned before, Christians just on principle freed all their slaves because they're, they're my brothers. Right. I can't see them in this way. Look at how Paul viewed and treated Onesimus and Philemon. Hmm. So the point of emphasis is this. If in the Old and New Testament you have rights afforded to them, if in the Old and New Testament a new identity given to them, and even in the face of blatant deception on the part of critics of the Bible who would say, well, it says that you can beat a slave within an inch of your life until you read two verses later and it notes if there's any cosmetic harm to them, they are freed from their captivity, Mm -hmm. their slavery, period, when they would make it note and saying, well, it reduced them to farming tools. Why? The word slavery. It defined the term. There's more than one way to use that reference. Then you have to go to the New Testament and ask, well, then how was it applied? And you see the foundations of modern abolitionism, which is what we have taken for granted as a society today. Now you ask the question then, well, you started this conversation saying there's more slaves today than any other time in history. 
Exactly. The advent of Islam, which institutionalized slavery for both women and men, and by the way, established it on the basis of color, I can give references to that, based on the influence of communism, the removal of Christian values, the rejection of foundations for Christian values, and essentially making the in particular, the uh, child sex trafficking slavery, as yeah. we see in the world today, all the more profitable than ever, we see a distancing from God promoted these ideals, but a drawing near to God with historical evidence and citation ends up removing it. So does the Bible condone slavery? What do you mean by slavery? If you mean chattel slavery, of course not. That was a capital offense. Do you mean indentured servitude? What do you mean by that? Because it's a little better. Do you mean childhood? Yeah, it makes reference in Romans that a child is no better than a slave as far as he's under his father's house. Do you mean employment? That people were employed, maybe not with all the rights we enjoy in the United States, but it's still, excuse me, still there. That's the point, is if the conversation can last more than, and we've gone for a half hour on this already, 12 seconds, which is usually the emotional attention span that is allowed on this issue, especially if they've been culturally conditioned to react to this yep. as if it's a personal offense to them, despite them not having any uh, any uh, experience in the slave trade themselves a day in their life. This isn't an intellectual issue. This is an emotional issue that's been used to manipulate people. And I'm not a fan of that. Yeah, yeah. Very good. Well, thank you for, for laying that out. Aaron, hope that helps you. Um, with that question, thank you for it. A question from Violet. Uh, what does it mean to pray without ceasing? I was just to pray without ceasing. What does that mean? Well, um, we always have a, you know, heads bowed, eyes closed, fingers together. That's how we should live our life. Is that what it means? Yeah, it'd be an interesting sight, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, this, the passage you're quoting is First Thessalonians 5 and verse 16. So let me read it. It says, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Now, since we consider Jesus our example, how did he live this out? Paul, speaking to the church in Thessalonica, one of his earliest letters, is telling the church, this is what Jesus has for you. And in the previous chapter, he notes, the one don't abstain from sexual morality, the one, the three do's, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks. What did that mean as far as how Jesus modeled it? Well, I see situations in the life of Jesus, in the four biographies we have attributed to his life. He wasn't always on his knees and addressing his father. He certainly did that a lot, sometimes in public, sometimes alone, more often the latter than the former. But if what we mean by praying is exclusively a one-on-one -on -one conversation with God where we're in some sort of position or whatever, that wasn't how Jesus took that. And if the apostles got this from Jesus, then what did he mean by that? Well, prayer is a little bit more nuanced than it's given credit for. And what I mean by that is this. If we define prayer as talking directly to God, that'd be a problem because sometimes we have to talk to other people. But if, on the other hand, communication with God. Hmm. doesn't necessarily have to be two people talking. I've been talking a lot this broadcast, and yet I'm communicating to all of you. I don't hear from you, so what's the difference? I think the most plain definition of 1 Thessalonians 5, and verse 17 in particular, is being aware of God's presence. Hmm. And I'll get other passages for that here in a moment. But 
to get to the heart of the issue, the kind of person who's aware of the presence of God, which is always with us. You can note the Psalms, for instance, in noting Psalm 139, David says, if I go into the highest of heavens, you're there, make my bed in Sheol, you're there. If I go make my uh, wings like the dawn and go to the farthest ends of the east, even there your hand shall uphold me, right? Just summarizing the point. God's always with you, and the more you're aware of that, the better because the only other option is to pretend like God isn't there, which the Psalms also describe as a very foolish mindset. The fool has said in his heart there is no God. Mm -hmm. Now, that was speaking to believers, so we can live our lives in such a way as if God isn't aware of what we're doing, that we're not accountable to him. Mm -hmm. But the point of emphasis, I think, is key in that this is the will of God for you, to live not just like he's there, but since he's there. Yeah. That's what I think prayer is. Prayer can be a form of acknowledging that fact, but in acknowledging the other two facets of this encouragement, rejoicing always. What does it mean to rejoice? To express joy, to see a hope fulfilled. That implies you have your hope in someone or something, in this case, the promises of God. In everything, give thanks. Does that mean that you pray, you know, God, thank you for the stomach cancer or whatever? No, it's saying what? you are able to find the good even in the worst of situations, that you're looking for God in those things. God, good, remove the vowel, easy math, right? But this is the point. If I'm going to act as if God is always there, sometimes I'll talk to him, sometimes I won't, but is that going to make an impact on my life that will be noticeable? Mm -hmm. That I live my life as if I'm a little Christ, as the people of Antioch unfortunately dubbed us all those years ago. Mm -hmm. The point being made is that. Am I aware of God's presence? Am I living like it? Am I treating him and others like it? Or am I trying to disregard him? That's what it would mean to pray without ceasing. And if you want more information on that, my father will be here tomorrow. And I'll have a chance to read more than just what's on the back of my head at the moment, (laughs) since we're live and I'm the only one here speaking, so I have to fill up the airtime. That's the point. But let me know if that helps you out. Thank you. No, that's, that's very good, Sean. Absolutely. Violet, thank you for that question. It's a great question i like the answer to a uh, question from maggie uh, how do we talk to someone who believes there is scientific and biological evidence that we are born hedonistic and maybe of course explain what hedonistic is for those who i, I prefer uh, hedonistic as opposed to lgbt because hedonism is a system where you determine right and wrong on the basis of pleasure hmm. that that's what you live for and okay. you determine what's good if it feels good right. and hedonistic lifestyles in those sort of movements, certainly not exclusive to them, but are certainly most prominent in them. And mm. if you stand in the way of my pleasure, you're evil. That, that's hedonism. Right. So feel, feel so right, can't be wrong kind of thing, basically. Spoken right. like a musician. But, yes. <laughs> uh, when we're talking about, what was that song, by the way? Can't be it wrong. Was from, it was from, wasn't it Happy Days? Yeah. yeah. The, the theme to Happy Days. Yeah, it was called Happy Days, right? Even though it was an American show I grew up watching on TV, but feels so right, can't be wrong, and that's sort of how a lot of people live. You know? I, I, I'm still growing up, and I uh, listen to Japanese shows, so I won't judge you for that. So, <laughs> um, What was the question again? Yeah, hedonism. Yes. The issue with that, I think, is threefold. Uh, this isn't in the conversation, but first of all, uh, the, the argument's a moral one, right? Mm. There's biological and scientific, whatever that means, evidence that someone's born this way. 
well, the argument I was born this way, going to music lyrics like Lady Gaga, is the argument I can't help this. This is just what I am. Yeah. That hedonistic groups would center their identity on the basis of their pursuit of pleasure. If it's homosexual, if it's heterosexual, if it's non-sexual, whatever. The point of emphasis is that's your identity. That's yeah. your purpose. That's your reason for being, right. which is sad. But if we're going to look at the assumptions, the first argument as a moral one is the fundamentals of ethics. Ought implies can. If I say you ought to do something, there's an assumption that you can do something. Mm -hmm. And if I tell someone who can't be anything but what they are, then I'm, I'm mistaken in saying that they are morally obligated. They ought to behave in a way other than their identity. Mm -hmm. The comparison is if someone, say, for example, their parents took antidepressants, they're born without a hand. They got like maybe a chicken wing or something, right? I can't, through psycho uh, psychological therapy and counseling, instruct them that there is a proper way to use your non-existent fingers right. and then could eventually, through uh, uh, altered lifestyles, learn to use an operational hand. It's what they don't have. Mm -hmm. The false comparison is that a behavioral issue, and, or just a behavioral, and a physical, yeah. something that you're born with, are the same thing. It's the equivocation error once again. I can't because I was born this way. Yeah. You mean you're incapable of interacting with somebody in any way but what you like? Mm. You're gonna have a tough time in society because you have to be polite to people you don't want to be. This is a behavioral issue. That That's the first part. The second part is if I'm going to make the argument not just that God's immoral for implying these things on me, but that my identity is centered on them, you don't have to grant that assumption, because when it comes down to it, our identity, apart from God, is just whatever we decide for them. And we mention often on the broadcast, we deal with people on the basis of where they are, not where we want them to be. And if they are separate from God, I don't hold them accountable as if they ought to live in a way that reflects a system of ethics they never claimed. And, and what I mean by that is this, I, a lot of words. If someone doesn't call themselves a Christian, I don't expect them to be one. Yep. But if someone does call themselves a Christian, that's different. I can hold them to a standard that's in writing. Right. Now, if they would at least pay homage to the person of Jesus of Nazareth, then we could meet in the best possible situation of any conversation and bring it back to the gospel. Mm -hmm. And what I mean is this. They put evidence. Okay, I don't buy it, but even if it were true, it doesn't go anywhere. Hear them out. Listen. You got two ears, one mouth. If you're willing to listen to them, you at least have a chance they'll be more willing to return the favor. And when they present evidence, and when you're aware of maybe faulty assumptions made along the way, don't jump on them right away, but make a note of that because it will come up a lot. Mm -hmm. And when you can get the conversation back to, usually the argument is the ought implies can, these people can't help what they are, then you can go, yeah, I can't help being a sinner in my own way, but whether it's in a heterosexual sense or a homosexual sense, whether it's in a, um, you know, multiple partner sense or being emotionally unfaithful or absent even from one specific partner, they would try to justify themselves based on these ideas. And the Bible would say that's wrong. To emotionally or physically neglect your spouse is wrong, even mm -hmm. if you say you're asexual. To engage with a relationship with someone who's the same gender is wrong, even if that's who you are. To engage in heterosexual lust outside of or apart from the covenant that you agreed to as a reflection of God's glory is wrong. But here's the point. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God.
my struggle with lust of the eyes is no different than someone who struggles with same-sex attraction. The question isn't whether or not we're sinners, so we do about it. Mm. So if you say, here's the scientific evidence that they're born sinners. Well, I can give you scriptural evidence that we're born sinners, but yeah. what do you do about it? Yeah. And you say, okay, so if what you are, just playing the game, is dispositions, or you're disposed, I guess would be the proper grammar, to engage in this kind of activity, you can grant them every point, but then say, would you like a new identity? Would you like something other than your sense of pleasure to determine who you are, your sense of value, your sense of community? Or is this evidence smokescreen just another form of manipulation to try to trap us and say Christianity is immoral because it doesn't fit into a system that doesn't even stand on its own weight? That's the point. Now, if the conversation goes in a better direction than that, all the power to you probably won't, but love hopes all things, right? So talking to someone about this, they bring it up, listen, ask good questions, be aware of inconsistencies, but make sure it comes back to Jesus and you won't go wrong. Note those three, especially in this form of objection, misconceptions, odd implies can, doesn't apply here. The assumption of identity and behavior are two different things. And then of course, when it comes back to it, we agree, but it's not a matter of embracing, it's a matter of seeking a better solution because yeah. one group says, I have a problem, therefore there's no problem. The other group says, I have a problem, there's the solution. Yes, that's right. Great, well, uh, Maggie, thank you for that question. Great question, especially in these times, more and more people doing what's right in their own eyes. Um, so I hope that helps you out with that. Thank you for asking that question. I have a question from Holland. Uh, where do people go when they die during the millennial kingdom, since Ooh. Jesus is on earth at that time? Yeah, um, you, you're clear when we define heaven, it's with Jesus. So the, the point of emphasis would be to physically die on a world where Jesus is. What do you do? You just make a round trip or something? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, um, it, it's a good question. I'm trying to remember in Isaiah where it talks about this. And uh, for those of you who might want to read ahead as well, I'll be going to Luke 16. Uh, it's the account of the rich man and Lazarus. Mm -hmm. But um, I, I want to say it's Isaiah 65. The description that we're given of the millennial kingdom as opposed to the new creation is because it mentions physical death for someone who's at 100 years old, but it makes a specific... Yes, uh, Isaiah 65 and verse 20. It makes a specific distinction between the person who's accursed and who isn't. So mm. um, let me uh, start in verse 17. For behold, I create a new heaven and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered or come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I create. For behold, I create Jerusalem as a rejoicing, and her people a joy. I will rejoice in Jerusalem and joy in my people. The voice of weeping shall no longer be heard in her, nor the voice of crying. Now that's literally quoted verbatim in Revelation 21 with the new heavens and the new earth. But also note as well, what does Revelation 21 add in verse 4? No death, nor crying, right? So there's no death. But in Isaiah's description, this would be distinct in verse 20. It says, No more shall an infant from there live but a few days, nor an old man who has not fulfilled his days. For the child shall die 100 years old. The language is literally, if you're dying at 100 years old, we'd still consider you a child. Hmm. But, and this is key, the sinner, 
being 100 years old shall be accursed. And then it goes on to note that they'll uh, have property values again. But the point being made is this. That passage would give me a good idea of the Millennial Kingdom because, first of all, noting the new creation language but making a distinction from what we're told in total detail in Revelation 21. There are two things. First of all, uh, this is in the Old Testament. We'll get to the new in a moment. Uh, People who are with Jesus and especially people who've been given glorified bodies will likely have, uh, well, definitely for the glorified bodies, but for those who are physical survivors of the tribulation who will be enjoying this new um, uh, new earth state, I guess would be the best way to put it, the Isaiah 11 world restored to Eden-like conditions and so forth, people then lived to be almost a thousand years old without <laughs> uh, the advantages of having the sin and the curse the curse of sin removed. So there's going to be a new system of aging in play Mm. because we'll be on essentially a different world, though the same. Now, what are the semantics of all that? We'll wait and see. But the idea is that those who are with Jesus will stay with Jesus. That's important. Whether they, at 100 years old, will physically die, then get a glorified body, or they'll live to be a 1,000, like other passages in Isaiah note, that people will be as old as trees and so forth. I'll leave that to confirmation. I'm more in favor of the idea of them physically surviving through the span of the millennium. But the other stat, the fact that people will be physically born during this time, not to the glorified people, but to the survivors of the tribulation, they will still sire children, and like we saw during the days of Adam and Eve, being able to keep up virility for centuries at a time is going to create a population boom, and these children will still have to make a decision to follow the Lord or not. And we'll be able to tell who's corrupted or converted, right? The, um, or perverted versus converted, almost had the rhyme down. The idea, though, is that at the hundred-year mark, that would be a note of someone being accursed by God. And Mm. where would they then go? Well, in Luke chapter 16, the account of the rich man and Lazarus, we're given a description of those who are essentially waiting for their day in court. Uh, It's not a uh, pleasant condition, but it's not capital H hell either. And again, let me just get the verse so that you can read it on your own time. But the idea, yeah, it is uh, Luke 16. Uh, Starting at verse 19, the point of emphasis is that Jesus describes a condition where those who are awaiting judgment or awaiting redemption obviously wouldn't be awaiting redemption, Jesus is here, Mm. but this place still exists. The Mm. grave, Sheol, lowercase h, hell, the abyss as it's sometimes called. That's the compartment for those, even today, who have physically died apart from Christ. Mm. That wouldn't change even in the millennium. Mm. But the fact that people, and this is the part of the question that we don't really have the answer yet, uh, how will people who physically, you know, die during during the millennium be reintroduced to Jesus, and the question is if that is even going to be a thing at all, apart from separation from God, because we'll have no disease, we'll have no predation of animals, no issues with nature. We'll go back to the Eden-like conditions where the only thing they had to be concerned about was violence against each other. It was only until after the flood that we saw a lot of the effects of nature as we see it today. So that's a point of emphasis, but if we're going to just stick to Isaiah 65, 20. Um, same place they are today, the place of the dead. They're awaiting judgment, not capital hell, but certainly a place where they have no one to blame for their state but themselves. Yeah. That would be my answer. Yeah. Thank you, Sean. Thank you for laying that out. Uh, Holland? Yes, that was your... 
question. Thank you for that. Hope that helps you out as well. Appreciate you being part of the show today. A uh, question from Goodness of Mercy. What a great name. <laughs> Why do we celebrate uh, Labor Day? Is it a pagan holiday? What is the significance of Labor Day? Is it like the Sabbath? Oh, dear. Um, no, it's not pagan. It's a unique. They're all Amer- pagan. Yeah, it, it applies to the villagers. That's what pagan means. Um, when we're talking about its historical origins, it's a uniquely American holiday. Uh, I believe the late 1800s was when we celebrated it first. Mm. There's some debate about who exactly put it into law. But the idea was that American prosperity was an all-time high, and they deserve a three-day weekend. So in regards to American excellence in labor, uh, they made a national holiday where they gave them a free three-day weekend. Now, the idea of the weekend as a principle uh, actually comes from Christianity. The idea of a Sabbath day where you get sundown Friday to sundown Saturday is a time of rest. That's where the concept of Saturday being recognized as a day of rest came from. And then Christians gathered on the first day of the week, according to the Roman calendar, that was Sunday, uh, mm-hmm. in order to commemorate the resurrection. And the state recognized, it didn't invent, but it recognized as a Christian, Judeo-Christian, basically, principle-based government to recognize these two days as just mandatory rest unless absolutely necessary. Mm. So so that's that's where that's come from. But the Labor Day issue, no, it's not pagan. Um, if you want to treat it like a Sabbath day, the attitude depends entirely on you. But it's not necessarily secular, but an entirely non-religiously affiliated holy day. It's just a federal holiday where our government recognized we did a good job and we deserved a break. Yeah. <laughs> that's all it is. Right. <laughs> Very good. I'll Those take outside it. Outside of America, uh, it means Monday. <laughs> <laughs> Just another Monday. So do as little work as possible. Yeah. Um, great. Well, goodness of mercy. Thank you for that question. Um, hope that uh, clears that up for you as well. Question from Yari. On a new heaven and a new earth, does God destroy his dwelling places as well? I heard on one website, heaven will be destroyed because Satan fell from there and the place God dwells now was corrupted by Satan. So the new, uh, new heaven and new earth, God just wipe it all clean and create new, new ones of everything. No, clean I slate. don't know where you got the, or where they got the idea that the old heaven was corrupted because Satan fell from it. Satan's the problem, not the place. Um, yeah, I think the fundamental misunderstanding is the term heaven. When we use the word heaven, we mean one of three things, either the atmosphere in Genesis 1, we mean the universe as a whole, the heavens as they're oftentimes used, or the place where God directly manifests his glory. He's the object, not the place. So if God comes to earth, this has now become heaven. If God comes to the new earth in the new Jerusalem, where we're told in Revelation 22, the Lord God will be its light. That, that implies a presence there, and the Lamb will also be there. So we have God the Son, and we got the Spirit as well as omnipresent, so mm. <laughs> note that. But the point being made is that third heaven distinguished from the others. It comes from Second uh, Corinthians chapter 12, I believe. Uh, Paul the Apostle emphasizes it not as a layer of heaven, but a term applied to heaven. So when we see its usage in other places, it can refer to the atmosphere, when it can refer to the universe, and it can refer to where God manifests his glory. The third term wasn't corrupted. That means that God got corrupted by Satan's fall. That's 
blasphemous. But yeah. if, on the other hand, we note where his glory manifests, it will come to earth, because we're told in Revelation chapter 22, or actually 21 as well, the tabernacle of God is with man, and that he will dwell with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God, and God wipe away every tear from their eyes. There'll be no more death, nor sorrow, nor crying. There will be no more pain, for their former things have passed away. That's the new creation. Now, using Isaiah 65's language intentionally, but building on it, no more death, that's the new world we look forward to that mm. Peter was talking about in Second Peter 3, but uh, 10 through 13 if you want to look it up. But the idea of Satan falling and thus making a fallen heaven, whoever made that or wrote that article or whatever really misunderstood what heaven is. And if our focus isn't on Jesus, we're going to miss the whole point of heaven itself. So mm. that would be my caution. Careful what you read. Yes, yes, indeed. Yari, thank you for that. Thank you for that question. Hope that helps you. A uh, question from Robert here. Good evening, my brothers in Christ. So I believe when at the great white throne judgment, there won't be any defending yourself because the Bible says the judgments of God are true and just. Do you think this may be the reason why no one will be able to defend themselves at the great white throne because they will know the judgment against them is true? Talking about the books being opened. Just wanted to hear your guys' thoughts. Thanks and God bless. Yeah, there won't be much arguing with God, I imagine. <laughs> I wouldn't be much arguing with that either. I think he's on the point. Yeah. Um, if you want me to read the passages that would support your view, I can. Uh, this is uh, Revelation chapter 20, where it notes the books being opened. That's uh, using the same language that we read in Exodus about people being brought to judgment for their crimes. Um, this starts in verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat on it, from whom the face from whose face the earth and heaven fled away, and there was found no place for them. And I saw the dead, small and great, standing before God, and books were opened. And another book was opened. This is the book of life. The dead were judged according to their works by the things which were written in the books. The sea gave up the dead which were in it, that's the nations. Death and Hades delivered up the dead who were in them, the place of judgment. And they were judged, each according to his works. Then death and Hades were cast into the lake of fire. This is the second death. And anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. Now, lake of fire, of course, that's referring to capital H hell, the dwelling place of those who live separate from God's blessings forever. Mm -hmm. See Revelation 14 for more detail on that. But the idea of people standing before God and them being judged according to their works, uh, these are very one-sided activities. If someone's standing before God, it's not as if they're speaking or giving a case. It's just says that they're standing. It yeah. might be a bit simplistic, but I think it's a fair picture. Also, judging, we usually think of that as, you know, you're being judgmental, you're condemning me. Not always. Judgment just means to come to conclusions. We need to do that on the basis of evidence, eyewitness testimony, you know, uh, court cross-examination, so forth, reliability of the witnesses and all that. But all of that is meant to imitate what God is by nature. So it's not as if God just arbitrarily de decides, you know, heaven, hell, hell, heaven, hell, whatever. It's the idea of him knowing all things, having been the eternal eyewitness, mm -hmm. him being truth by nature, that you can't charge truth of perjury, and that, of course, our desire to call forth a witness will be a witness in of ourselves because our lives will tell the tale. Right. All things are bare before him to whom we must give account. Yep. And that would be the 
point of challenge to this view, but um, I think it's fair to say that there won't be defending your actions. They'll be giving an account of your actions because that's, as far as I can remember at the moment, the only kind of language we give of someone standing before the throne of God. Because, I mean, you see people today who can just thump their chest and go, if I saw God, then I'd tell them, you know, all that stuff and yeah. whatever. But when you're in the presence of something that's actually happening, it's uh, we're, we're running low on time here, so I'll just drag this point out a little bit. Uh, when we were doing a little, you know, physical activity event and we did the dizzy bat rally where mm. you have to stick yeah. a baseball bat on your forehead, spin around it in a forward leaning position. And you basically just put your brain on tilt for about 30 seconds and then you yeah. just have to run straight. <laughs> and, and, you know, you can eventually dive off to the side, you roll around, everyone has a good laugh until it's their turn. But the idea is, you know, I'm, I'm drilling myself and saying, okay, just Make sure that it's one step at a time. Don't run, walk, remind yourself to not lean into it, but just continue moving with it because your body's pushing it. I could intellectualize it all I wanted, but by the time my brain was in literal vertigo, yeah. it didn't matter what kind of prepping I did, it didn't matter what kind of attitude I did. When reality hits you like a truck, yeah. you fall down. Yeah. And that's, I think, the point. When an atheist or a Muslim or whoever is going to try to challenge God, that's the kind of stupidity that could only come from someone who isn't actually there. Yeah. When you're in the presence of a holy God, literally, Scripture says, every mouth will be silenced. Right. So the idea is just that. And even if he were to entertain their arguing against him, well, <laughs> uh, just, again, I'm using illustrations aside because I think I've belabored the point. You're going to be put in a position where someone could counter every argument with uh, direct evidence. Yeah. So good luck trying to argue with someone who knows everything. Point be made, though, is that um, and if you want, you can listen to our previous studies going through Ezekiel, where the king of Egypt, believe it or not, in his state of judgment is comforted knowing that he will be getting exactly what he deserves and in that state before standing before God. Mm -hmm. So let me know if that helps you out. But yeah. uh, that's my answer. <laughs> yeah, very good. Robert, thank you. Thank you for that. Well, we Reached the end of our show. That went super fast. That, that second half an hour just flew on by. Thank you, Sean. Great job today. Yeah, he was here just, just batting. Solo batter here. Did a great job. And kudos to Bo. 30-year anniversary. Good yes. job for keeping your oath, brother. Absolutely. We'll see you guys tomorrow. Same time, same place. God bless you guys. You've been listening to A Reason for Hope. Thank you again for joining us as we continue our journey through God's Word. One question of the heart at a time. Until we meet again, we would love to connect with you. You can text or email your questions to questionsforhope at gmail.com. You can also find out more about our ministry at calvarychristianfellowship.com. And be sure to join us next time on A Reason for Hope. A Reason for Hope is an outreach ministry of Calvary Christian Fellowship in Tucson, Arizona.